What a blessing it is that you've tuned in to Transforming Truth. The message that you're about to hear is part of a series that I've called Fusion, and it is talking about the reality of our unity as the body of Christ. We're living in a season where it's clear to me that God is tearing down the barriers that typically have divided Christians in generations past. I believe we're close to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to be the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he repeatedly asked the Father that all of his father's followers would become one. So when we think about that massive prayer by Jesus, it puts a, a big impact on us. How are we becoming the answer to Jesus' request of the Father, that the Father might make all of us one. Enjoy the message. I hope you'll tune in for all of them. God bless. All right, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. If you came in after the initial welcome tonight, we'll give you a, a residual welcome. We're glad you're here, and uh, we are in a series both on Wednesdays and Sundays, and the series is called Fusion, and it's really about our, our unity in Christ. We, we talk about pressing into unity, but we're not actually trying to create unity. We're trying to abide in what Jesus has already established. The teaching of Scripture is that we are actually one, and interestingly enough, it's, it's one of those places in Scripture where there's a, a tension between the already and the not yet. We are already one in Christ, but it has not yet been fully manifested. It's as if, if, if you need something else to kind of help you grasp that, it's Jesus is already Lord of all, and yet we don't see everything under submission to his lordship. It doesn't change the fact that he's Lord, but we have not yet seen the full manifestation. We will one day when all things are placed under his feet. And so in that same way, we are already one. We are already unified, and yet the Bible is very strongly, repeatedly in the New Testament especially, calls us to operate and to cultivate in the sense of receiving and living out the oneness that we've already been given. And so we are taking several weeks. I think it'll end up at the end of it about 10 weeks. I think this is the fifth of 10 different messages, and we're, we're just exploring this. And just so you know ahead of time, I am intentionally being confrontational with these messages. I, if, if you're not being stretched, you're either not listening or you are the most easygoing, yielded, people-loving person ever. Most of us are, have heard things in these messages that are saying, man, is he being serious? Is that really what the Bible teaches? And one of the things that I'm being stretched in is I knew this was scriptural, but I didn't see how serious the Lord was about this issue of unity until I made it a two-month personal pilgrimage and study. And what I'm finding out is there's little, we have little maverick parts of our hearts that don't quite want to be bridled. They don't quite want to come under the Lordship of Christ. We, we cut ourselves some slack in our disobedience in certain areas because maybe we're 85 to 90% obeying in this area of unity. But Jeff, if you're asking me to walk in unity with this person or this type of person, I can't do that. Well, that's an illegal kingdom move. You're actually not allowed to do that. We're actually called to pursue and go after unity in the same kind of zeal that the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people in Jesus's day went after the Mosaic law. That is the teaching of scripture. And so I know I'm challenging you, I'm doing it on purpose, and tonight may be a little easier than some of the, the other ones, but coming up um, in a couple of Sundays, there's going to be a message from Romans 14 and 15 that I'm going to share that has the potential to radically set you free from your relational hangups. There, there is this potential in the Scripture that 12 years ago, brought me out of legalism and into liberty. And it changed my marriage. It changed my fatherhood to my kids. It definitely changed my ministry, but most of all, it changed my understanding of, of who Jesus is. And so I hope that you have an appetite for this because it's what I'm serving up for the next couple of weeks. So let me go ahead and get into the scripture. I'm actually going to risk it and read 15 verses tonight, and we'll see how far we get in it. Uh, the name of the message is Fixing Fractured Fellowship. And I think we can actually not only grow in this message, but we can actually have some fun with it too because we're going to have an opportunity to kind of laugh at ourselves. But the end of it will be, okay, we're laughing at it, but we've got some work to do. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
I look in verse number 10. Paul is writing what I call the messed up church, the church at Corinth. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or the super spiritual ones, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's a lot of verses, and it's taken us through some chunky stuff. I won't be able to hunker down deeply in all of it, but there are some things in here that address some issues that were common in a local church in Corinth 2,000 years ago in a very different um, time and a very different scene. But yet human nature being what it is, um, we can learn some stuff from what Paul wrote to them. All of us have probably been around churches long enough. If you've never experienced this, close your ears so you will never have to know it exists. But if you've been in church for a while, you recognize that we don't always get along. Unfortunately, it's probably one of the most tolerated sins in the church, this willful disunity and the unwillingness of leaders to do the hard work and say the tough things and pay the difficult price to make sure that flocks stay unified in the most essential things. Now, the other end of the spectrum is there are some ministries, churches, or attitudes in Christians that in what they're seeking to do is preserve and pursue unity, but what happens is some people become controlling. So everybody has to look the same. Everybody has to sing the same. Everybody has to dress the same and carry the same translation of Scripture and obey the same rules, none of which happen to be grounded in Scripture. And so in order to to give visible, a visible aspect to what they call unity, it actually becomes uniformity. And uniformity makes everybody behave the same way. And that's just religion. That's just control. So you've got these two ditches. You've got chaos on this side where nobody gets along. And then you've got control on the other side where some power broker makes everybody get along. Neither of those reflect the heart of Jesus. So what does? Well, the beauty of the body of Christ, and if you're here this coming Sunday morning, you'll hear this in detail. God actually loves diversity. When we talk about God being the creator, remember that as as the creator, he has a creative heart. God likes diversity. He likes colors. He likes textures. He likes all all sorts of different shapes. I mean, we, we can't see but a speck in the cosmos compared to what he's created. But the magnitude of what is out there, even what we know, just shows us that God likes making stuff and making it diverse. And, and when it comes to the body of Christ, I think one of the most ungodlike things we can do is, is those two things that I explain: either make everybody behave, look, and act the same, or to let chaos come out of that um, diversity. You see, it's unity in the midst of diversity, and that's what Paul's going to write about here. And so let's learn together tonight, and let's start in verse number 10. 
with our call to unity. This is very simple stuff in this very first verse that we're going to look at. And so I'm going to give you four quick things out of verse 10. The first thing that's mentioned is, is the reality of our family. He says this, who's he writing to? I appeal to you brothers. Now that's just the masculine language of the Bible. That's the literal translation, but it didn't leave the sisters out either. He's talking to the family of God. One thing I know about brothers and or sisters is that they have the same father. And so he starts off in this very um, um, kind of a, a brotherly appeal. He's saying, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm not saying this to employees. I'm not saying this to slaves. I'm not saying this to people that must obey under the penalty of death. He's appealing to everything he's about to say is on the appeal of, hey, we're a family. We actually have the same heavenly father. We look differently, we act differently, we're gifted differently, but when, when all of that difference is acknowledged, the one thing that does not change is the fact that we belong to an everlasting family. Then we are connected not only as family on earth, but we're also connected to the family that's gone before us and is in heaven. When, when God's kingdom, we talk so much about the kingdom, but synonymous with that reality of the kingdom is that he's building a family that we are the children of God. And so that's ABC elementary stuff. But one of the things that motivates me when I, I maybe get into a, a, an issue or a situation with somebody that um, it, it's not going very conducively, there's friction, there's challenges, maybe there's hurt or all of those things, I have to remember this person's my brother. This person is my sister. This person is as beloved of the Lord as I am, not less nor more, but equally, we are the objects of the Father's affection. And so if I act in, in a way that is unholy towards this person, I'm actually pre uh, presenting an affront to our Father. When I hurt my brother or sister, I actually hurt the heart of our Father. And so Paul is laying the foundation for what he's about to say, because he's going to say some tough stuff, but he's reminding them, hey, we're a family. The second thing in verse 10 is this. He's, he talks about our following. Look at what he does. He's about to talk about unity, and he, he, he brings about, he invokes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the strongest possible way he could open up what he's about to say. He says, everything I'm about to tell you, I'm doing so, and I'm invoking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to everything he's about to say. When I read that this afternoon, it hit me afresh. I've preached this passage before, but I don't think I ever really fully meditated on the fact that when Paul is talking to them about their disunity and their fractured fellowship, and he's telling them to get their act together, he does so not simply as the apostle Paul, but he does so invoking the name of Jesus. And when, that, when you see that in scripture, all scripture is authoritative, but it adds a certain level of, of sobriety to it. It means, hey, what I'm about to tell you, I am coming full force, and I want you to be aware that you're doing this in the presence of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one we follow. He is the one that all of us, brothers and sisters, no matter what our personalities or our giftings or our temperaments or our preferences, ultimately, we all bow the knee to the same king. He is Lord. He is the authority. I used to love when I was taking Spanish and I was learning biblical stuff in Spanish, I, I love the fact that the word for Lord, one of them, there's actually a couple that are used interchangeably, but, but one of them is, is jefe. In, in Spanish, jefe. Is that right, Mr. Laura? Is that right? They use that sometimes in, in, in Spanish. And, and jefe, a, a very um, common way of translating that in English is boss. Is boss. I remember my, my Spanish-speaking friends used to, that was the name they called me. They wouldn't call me Jeff, they called me Jefe, because they sound the same, but ultimately that means boss. So when I think about Jesus, there are times where, you, yeah, we need to think of the tenderness and the kindness, but there are other times we need to remember, he is Lord of all, and he's not playing around. And so let's go further into it. Y'all stick with me. It's not only our family and our following, but, but our faith. Now, here it comes. He says, I'm imploring you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you. Good night, Paul. Why don't you set the standard a little high? He's talking to a group of Christians who are flowing in spiritual gifts, but not flowing in love, not flowing in maturity, not flowing in wisdom or discernment. They are, they're like kids with toys. They've got prophetic power. They've got tongues. They've got miracles. They've got words of knowledge and words of wisdom. You can read that all in chapter number 12. They're, they, they're uber gifted. In this very chapter, he says, you come behind. You're lacking no spiritual gift. But they had the, a serious love issue. 
a serious maturity issue. And so Paul comes to him and he says, I'm going to tell you right off the bat in the name of Jesus, the division stops now. (laughs) He says, I want you to learn how to agree and I want you to start today. And so everybody in that room, remember the setting when, when we're reading it in our Bibles, everybody's got a copy of it. When this letter came to Corinth, it came in a scroll. It was from the Apostle Paul, who was probably at Ephesus when he wrote it. And it's read as in the gathered group. It's a group of Christians. So they're all hearing it. And so as soon as they hear that Paul is aware that there's divisions, everybody's thinking, oh man, I wonder if he knows about me fighting with brother so-and-so. I wonder if he's thinking about me fighting with sister so-and-so. I wonder if he heard what I said. And so automatically, everybody's aware that they're not operating in agreement and that Paul, with the authority of Jesus, is saying it stops right here. And then ultimately, here we go. Why? Here's a positive aspect. Paul is not only going to tear down some things, he's going to build up. He says in verse number uh, 10, at the end of it, he says, I want you to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, Paul is not calling for a uniformity of opinion. He's not saying that everybody has to think exactly alike on every single issue. He's not talking about a uniformity of opinion, but a unity of purpose. That they need to intentionally hold on to what unites them instead of giving up because of what they might not agree on. Friends, that is the same binding call of God on our lives today. You will not find anywhere in your Bible that we are commanded to always agree on every peripheral issue in the kingdom. You don't find that in Scripture. They didn't do it when they were living out their faith on the pages of Scripture. But what we are not allowed to do is take those peripheral things that we don't always agree on and inflate them with our ego and inflate them further with our our strong preferences and inflate them even further with our demand to have our way. And we inflate them so much that the things that we differ on get so bloated that they explode and the relationship is ruined. And unfortunately, I hate to air dirty laundry out, but that happens a lot in the body of Christ. And every single time it happens, and it's happened to me, it's probably happened to you before. You can probably think of relationships that if you could turn back time, you would have said things differently, or you would have held your tongue, or you wouldn't have walked away, or you wouldn't have have gone after that person. And so we learn as we go, but what Paul was seeing here in Corinth is that nobody was fighting against the grain. It seems at Corinth that it was epidemic division, and here's where it starts to get a little more interesting. Part of the reason that they were divided from each other is because they were, they were all following to an inordinate degree. They were following personalities in the church. And Paul, unwillingly, happened to be one of those personalities. So let's go a little bit further. Here we see our commitment to unity. In verses 11 through 16, here's where the problem is exposed. And remember, this is in the opening part of the letter that he wrote. So Paul gets past all the niceties and he says, Now then, Houston, we have a major problem. And the problem is is kind of exposed right here. Look in verse number 11 and see him expose it. Watch this. Paul is not in that city and he's writing to them from a distance. And he says, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's a quarreling among you, my brothers. So the inward disagreements had now spilled out, so they were now outward fights. Just just strip away all of the, the biblical flowery thoughts and just understand this. There were people that were going after each other at the church at Corinth. They were fighting with each other. They were mad at each other. They were proud against each other. And instead of maintaining unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, they were intentionally quarreling. We don't know who Chloe is, but whoever was part of Chloe's household, Chloe was somehow associated with the church at Corinth. I wonder if she liked having her name read, by the way. Uh, It's like, yeah, Chloe's folks told on you. And so whoever was in Chloe's family, they finally got sick of it. Thank God for people in the kingdom that see the division, see the disunity, see the carnality, hear all the gossip, hear all the slander, hear all the quarreling and the fighting and the murmuring and complaining. And some people just get sick of it. And what do they do? Well, in this case, they told Paul. So Chloe's household gets word to Paul and nobody can hide anymore. God's really gracious, by the way. Sometimes we don't like to get caught when we're not acting like Jesus. 
But one of the most gracious, merciful things that the Father can do is expose our sinful tendencies so that we're no longer prisoners to them. You see, repentance may be painful, but it's actually the thing that sets us free. And they needed to be delivered from their carnality. Why? Because remember, their public fights were were a, a blight against the name of Jesus. These are the people that are supposed to love each other. These are the people that are are supposed to die to themselves daily. The people that are supposed to carry their cross and follow the Lord. The people that are supposed to lay down their lives for their their brother. It's a great act of kindness. And yet their testimony at this point was they were known for fighting with each other. Now, I don't know about you. I I do have probably a, a little bit of a pessimistic streak or a cynical streak. But am I stepping out on an unsturdy limb when I, when I suggest y'all probably know of situations like this in churches? Has is, is anybody ever heard of anything like this in a church? Okay, good. We're, we're being honest here. It's not pleasant, but I just want to make sure it's not just been churches that I've been in. We, we, we all know that this stuff kind of happens. There come seasons where the father, for whatever reason, says, that's not going to be going on anymore. I, I'm not going to allow that. God cannot entrust revival, breakthrough, and heavy abiding anointing on a divided church. We can pray for it. We can fast for it. We can sing into it. We can do all of the human exercises that we've been trained to do to help facilitate revival. But I'm going to tell you, it it stops dead in its tracks if people are divided. It can't come to a local church that's divided. It won't come to a region that is divided, and it'll never sweep a nation where a church is divided. And so the call to unity is not just, hey, can't we all get along? It is so much more deeper that it's actually tied to the purposes of God. So one of the things that I'm seeing going on in our region right now, if I can just take the step back and look prophetically, why in our region right near the city of Atlanta, but even more expansively in the southeast, Why do I keep hearing over and over again from young pastors, old pastors, charismatic pastors, Baptist pastors, Presbyterian pastors, Methodist pastors, white pastors, black pastors, Hispanic pastors, Asian pastors, pastors that don't know each other, aren't networking with each other. Why do I keep hearing this thread of, you know, we sense God is calling churches to unity. We sense God is terror. Why? Is it coincidence that literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens of churches Um, are are, are saying the same thing and preaching the same thing and pressing in for the same thing. Friends, there's only one explanation for that. It's because it's what the Father is doing. The Father is doing this and his children are starting to discern it. Why would God want to unify his church in this season where it might have been in seasons past that he gave us a little bit more, I don't want to say tolerance, but he, he didn't impress upon it so much. Why is he doing it in this season? I'll tell you why. This is, I believe this on my heart, because he is ready to send revival, and in order for us to steward revival, he's got to fill in the gaps that we have created by being divided. So it's much bigger than just a practical, oh, I think we should all get along better. No, my friends, if we're going to steward what God is doing, we can't do it and with fractured fellowships. And so let's go further into it. He, Paul not only exposes the problem by telling them, yeah, Chloe's folks have told me y'all are really filing things up right now. Look in verse number 12. He examines the problem. What did that problem look like? Well, here's part of it in Corinth. Paul says, here's what I mean. Each of you is saying, well, I follow Paul. Or you're saying, well, I follow Apollos. Or you're saying, well, I follow Cephas, which is just Peter's Aramaic name. And then you have the super spiritual people say, I don't follow any human being. I'm just a Jesus follower. God bless those people. I've pastored some of them before. It's like, I don't have to listen to our, our, our church authority. I, I can hear Jesus for myself. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to get with your program. And it sounds so super spiritual, but it's patently unbiblical. And so what you've got here is Paul has become aware that these, these leaders in the church, Paul himself being one of them, Paul would be what I call the educator. He's the teacher. He's the architect of New Testament doctrine. He's the one to whom God revealed the mystery of the gospel in the church age. And Paul wrote the whole book of Ephesians and Romans to kind of outline that. So Paul is the brilliant mind and the scholar. He's the educator. And there are some people that said, he's got all the theology. He's got the mysteries. He's got the hidden wisdom. We follow Paul. And then you've got Apollos. Now, Apollos was an interesting character. He was Jewish, but he had a a Gentile name, Apollos. I mean, coming from the system of pagan worship. And then, but he was from Alexandria, Egypt. But you know what Apollos' great gift was? 
He wasn't all that biblically educated, but he could preach the socks off of anybody in the room. So you find in Acts chapter number 18 that, that Apollos had eloquence, and that was so valued in Corinthian culture. And so when Apollos spoke, he could read the phone book, and people would say, amen. I mean, he was just that good. And so people in that culture were really drawn to a, to a, a person that could talk really well. And so some people said, well, we, we, Paul's great, but man, I just want to listen to Apollos preach. And then you had Peter. And so if, if Paul was the, the educator and Apollos was the communicator, Peter is what I would call the originator. Peter was the rock that Christ, his statement, his confession of faith, the church was built upon that, that Christ, Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter was the one who was the, the boldest of the original disciples, and he was very much in the forefront in the early church. And so what happened? Instead of the church honoring these servants, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and just honoring them and respecting them and learning from all of them, they started choosing teams. And so right there in a local church, you had the cult of personality. Now, Paul and Apollos and Peter didn't want that, but the people did it. It still goes on today. It still happens today. I want you to, I'm going to just move quickly past this, but I'm going to just give you something here. Discipline your heart and pursue maturity to the extent where you can learn from anybody. Anybody. If they're speaking the truth if their heart is submitted unto the Lord, whether they're flamboyant, flashy, eloquent or not, but if they are God's servant and their character is strong, whether they're in a pulpit or not, just recognize that God is willing to use multitudes of people in your life. But if you shut down so many avenues through which God communicates, you're going to have a lopsided view of the kingdom. If all you listen to is the hill takers, you know, the people that are going to storm the gates and they're, you know, they're the battle cry people, that's all you're going to think about in the kingdom. Everything's just going to be about war, take territory, spiritual warfare, and you're not going to learn anything about abiding. You're not going to learn anything about interceding. You're not going to learn anything about, about uh, just behind the scenes serving. If all you do is want the hill takers, then you cut yourself off from so much in the kingdom. And so what we've got to do, instead of being divided in our churches and, and giving in to the impulse of the most famous Christian celebrity. I mean, Christians weren't really celebrities before a couple of hundred years ago. And, and it's, it's kind of sad. And, and the, the bad thing is, is I don't think that most Christian leaders went set out to become celebrities. They became that way because they started believing what people said about them. And all of a sudden, they lose their humility. They lose their, their brokenness. And they start becoming, you know, the bionic Christian superstar. So don't feed that animal. Don't buy into that. Recognize that some of the choice servants of God are people whose names that most people don't even know. And you'll see that at the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to have our mouths hanging open at the judgment seat. As we walk, we see people that we never batted an eye at, and they're going to be receiving more rewards than some of these people that stand under lights and draw big crowds. So Paul examines the problem, which is the cult of personality. They're just following after leaders. And then Paul, I love what he does here, guys, ladies and gentlemen. Paul extinguishes the problem. He puts an end to it right there. This is where Paul's type A personality is clear. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In one swift, deft stroke, Paul comes in and he says this. He says, why are you making so much about me? Why are you enamored with Apollos? Why are you trying to get Peter's autograph? He says, in essence, he says, it's about Jesus. It is always about Jesus. And he says, I'm Paul. Was I crucified for you? And what he does, and this is such wise leadership. It, it's, it's not only wise, it's reasonable. Every single leader that is operating in the spirit and is intentionally seeking the heart of the father and is intentionally obeying the command to live filled with the spirit, every leader, the last thing he or she wants is to be the, the, the center of attention. And so Paul reasonably says, take all of that energy and focus that you're placing on Apollos, Peter, and myself, and get your eyes back on Jesus. This is, this is important. When we get our eyes off of the Lord, and even if we're putting our eyes on a great servant of God, 
we have immediately made ourselves susceptible to the division that has often plagued the body of Christ. Because leaders are great, but leaders can't keep everybody unified. Jesus is the singular fixture in the church that has the ability to keep every single, le- excuse me, every single Christian completely unified. I think one of the best illustrations, it's not perfect, but it's a good one that I was ever given, uh, was a guy that, that showed me early on in my Christian life. He said, Jeff, the church can be viewed as, the, as a bicycle wheel. I was like, where is he going with this? And he said, see all the spokes on the wheel? I'm like, yeah, there's dozens and dozens of spokes. He says, notice what they're, where they're all connected. Well, where are they all connected? Right there in the hub. But what you notice is the farther they get away from the hub, the farther they get away from each other. Those spokes, the further they move out from the hub, the further they move out from each other. The closer they are to the hub, the closer they are to each other. And he said, that's the church. He taught me that when I was 24 years old, been saved about six months. And I realized at that time, I was like, that's it. If we will all press in and remain close to Jesus, that is where the center of unity is. We can't be unified in our preferences. If I took a poll right now, some of you will like hip-hop Christian music. Others of you like Southern gospel. Some of you will like only Bethel. God help us in the day of the Bethel only cult. You know, I came through the King James only cult. Don't be offended with me. But now I'm starting to see in music the Bethel only cult. I was like, there's actually a lot of good music out there, and Bethel is some of it. But the point being is this. We can't be united all the time in the body of Christ around our musical preferences, around our spiritual giftings. But there's one thing that we all share in common. We've all been, as Christians, set free by the blood of Jesus, and we all actually love him more than we love anything else. And so if we will press into that, it's really hard to fight with people. I mean, I've never fought with anybody in the midst of worshiping Jesus. I've never done that. Why? Because you are fixated on him. And so Paul brings this up, and he says, hey, Peter's not your savior. Apollos isn't your savior. Paul, I, Paul, I'm not your savior. Christ isn't divided. So let me ask you this. I understand that we all understand that theologically, but how committed are you to holding on to that in your relationships with others? Because I'll go out on a limb here again. Some of you probably have some people, some Christians in your life that irritate you, right? (laughs) Some of you don't? Well, you probably never leave the house then, because I'm going to tell you, if you hang out long enough with the church, you're going to find some people that you're going to get sideways with. Some people just grate on our nerves. That's just human. You don't have to apologize for that. But, but you're not allowed to sacrifice the precious unity of the gospel and what Jesus died to pay for. You're not allowed to sacrifice that because somebody rubs you the wrong way. You have to remain committed. You have to fight for it. You literally have to fight for unity. It sounds like a paradox, but you do. And so we look further down into the last handful of verses, and we'll wrap it up here in a few minutes. The commitment to unity is simply this. Jesus is everything to us. We're not going to get sidetracked and follow after different individuals and let that divide the body of Christ. Our call to unity is, is really attached to the lordship of Jesus. It's not an option. I know we hate in America, we hate people to take our options away because we like to be autonomous. We like to always make sure that we have a way of escape so if we don't like something we can bail or we can rewrite the contract we like clauses that we can escape and all that when it comes to the lordship of jesus i want to tell you something um he really isn't playing around he's really saying y'all are going to be unified and you're going to be unified in me and i can't bless you if you won't pursue that and so i mean it's really kind of a wake-up call because again I'm, i'm just exposing some things here we don't really feel the pinch of his authoritative summons to unity. You know why? Because we can just move to a different church. It happens all the time. They don't like something at this church or they get, they get a fractured relationship with somebody. And it's like, oh, I can pretend that never happened. I will just go down and join that church. And then if it happens again there, they just join the next church. Listen, some people are part amphibians. They just hop from church to church to church. And, and, and they never deal with their issues. And so what the Lord says, and of course you couldn't do that in, in the day where Paul's writing because wherever there was a gathering in that city of Christians, there weren't like nine places you could go and pick what church you liked. There, was, there were just fewer in number. And so you had to belong to the group of believers in your city. But what's our conviction for all of this? This is what's cool. Paul ties 
the mandate for our unity directly to what the high price was paid to secure your soul. This is the brilliance of the Holy Spirit as he works through the Apostle Paul in writing this. He's just told us, you guys have to knock it off with each other. You need to learn to get along. You need to start thinking in unity with each other and then living in unity with each other. And all of that feels very constricting. And so what Paul immediately does, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to immediately move into the gospel. He's going to remind us who we are in Christ, and that's what empowers us to pursue unity. And so let's look at that, and then we'll be done. So our conviction for unity basically is just our understanding of how blessed and graced we are to be saved. And so let's look at it. The Christian's priority. Paul says this in verse 17. Christ didn't send me to baptize people. He sent me to preach the gospel. And then Paul adds this, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul's about to get raw here. This is hard for us to receive in 21st century America. Paul, you may be surprised, was, was very transparent about the fact that he wasn't a very good speaker. Um, he, he actually talks about it in his letters that his testimony was, when you went to hear the apostle Paul, um, you, you're not going to be that impressed outwardly. So Paul didn't come with human wisdom. Paul didn't come with slick marketing. He didn't come with, with awesome ways of saying things. He, actually, he said, I, I came to you stammering and stuttering in speech. He says that on more than one occasion. He's just letting them know, hey, I'm going to say what y'all say about me. I'm not a great speaker. And yet Paul was the man that God chose to be the the pioneer of the New Testament church. And so he's saying here, it is the message, not the messenger. It is, the, it is what is delivered, not who is delivering it. That literally, friends, and we need to hear this, that there is supernatural God-birthed power in the message itself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ or the word of God. The power of the gospel, it is the power, the gospel is the power of salvation. And so literally, we don't have to soup it up. We don't have to drape it in cool ornaments. We don't even have to repackage it in easy on the ears uh, verbiage. But what we have to do is we have to, we have to tarry before the Lord and be endued with power from on high, whatever that looks like through our human instrumentation. But it is actually the message itself that has the power. And so what Paul is saying here is he's bringing them back to the cross. He's taking them back to that very emblem, that occasion, that event that was the foundation that radically transformed their lives and secured their souls before a holy God. And so he's doing two things. One, he's getting their eyes off of the temporary to quit squabbling with each other, to quit being fanboys of Paul and Peter and, and Apollos. And, and he's saying, get your eyes on Jesus and remember what was done for you. The, the cure to most of the ills in our relationships is for us to retain a grateful heart. I promise you this, when relationships are fractured in the body of Christ or even in the home, I mark it down every time one, one Christian in that home or in that church, they have gotten their eyes off Jesus and they've become ungrateful. It happens, friends. Listen, you have to fight to remain grateful. We're, we're, there's a reason we're commanded multiple times to be grateful. Why? Because it's just not natural. But the grateful heart is willing to work with other people and that gratitude it's not just about our temperament. I mean, some people are just naturally easygoing and grateful. We have to remain objectively grateful. What does that mean? Just remember what he did for us. I mean, I don't know if you've had time lately or made time lately, but, you know, he found me as an adult. So I had a long awareness of how unworthy I was when he saved me. I mean, not only did I have not have merit, I, didn't, I couldn't earn it. I had demerit. I had a long list of reasons why God would have been justified and just kind of zapping me into oblivion. But instead, he, he showed mercy and compassion, and he saved me. And when I'm thinking rightly, I'm still like really, really, really happy about that. When I wake up and I can just get centered in the fact, oh, man, I am so forgiven today. Ooh, it feels good. It's just like a fresh breeze. I'm forgiven. You know, I'm still short. I'm a little pudgy. I'm losing my hair. I'm not as energetic as I used to be. But, man, I'm still so ridiculously saved. 
I'm so saved, it's pitiful, this is awesome. And so you just get centered in that, and, and, and it just changes your outlook. So when 15 minutes later, you know, you're driving down 85 and some moron cuts you off and just zips in and out, you don't have to perform sign language. And so he sees it in his rearview mirror. You're just like, go ahead, buddy, get in there. Why? Because you're, um, you're just not willing to interrupt that fellowship. Why? Because you're just soaking in his goodness to you. And that goodness, friends, let's just remember, I love favor. I love provision. I love anointing. But let's just get really organic with our faith and just not forget the cross. Where Jesus willingly gave his life for people that didn't deserve it. And and paid the price so that you can be in paradise with him. That's the key phrase there, with him. Because wherever he is, that's paradise. We can be with him forever and ever. So that is our priority. As important as baptism is, it's not the most important thing. As important as serving is, it's not the most important thing. As important as even coming together to worship, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing, ultimately, is that we'll stay centered in the presence of Jesus and and intentionally go after the cultivating and the retaining of a very, very grateful heart because of what happened on Calvary and what he did on the cross. Second thing, and I will wrap it up here, it's time. Um, What does that pardon look like? What does it mean to be pardoned? I wrote a letter to a pardoned parole board for a friend two weeks ago, a man that made a mistake but is, is actually just a beautiful human being, a young African-American man who I was dear friends with. He was on fire, but he had committed a crime before his salvation. A year later, they sentenced him for, for 10 years. And he's coming up for a parole. I got to write the parole board, and I said, here's what I know about this brother Here's what I'm committed to do as, as his brother in Christ. And, and, and here's what I believe can happen if you'll show him some mercy and pardon him. So all of it's in the judge's hands. It was very similar to us. We were in the hands of a holy judge. And we couldn't hide our crimes, our sins. And yet he chose, instead of um, execution, he stole pardon. What does it look like? Let's look at a couple of things very quickly. Your salvation, your forgiveness, and I pray that you're saved. I pray that you've received Jesus. And if you haven't, my friend, I'll just say just kindly and bluntly, I don't know what you're waiting on. It's an offer from a, a king, and it's not a, it's not a forever offer. It can be, you can miss it if you don't say yes to it. But when it's given and it's received, it rests in divine power. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. You're saved not because you're good, not because you try hard, not because you did better today than you did yesterday. You're saved because God is a merciful father and he extended love to you and he paid the price. And all he asks of you is that you will turn to him in a moment of repentance, turn from your sin, turn to him, acknowledge that you have sinned against them, him, and then ask him for forgiveness as you trust in his son Jesus. That, that's the pardon, and it's rooted in his power. And the Bible says that when you do that, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, something happens that you become a new creation in Christ Jesus, and the old that was attached to you is taken away, and then, behold, all things have become new. And, man, that's the, the glory of it. Literally, as God sees a, tr- a salvation, from God's perspective, every salvation is a violent wrenching away. You know, my wife was saved at eight years old. Amy never got off in the world. She's lived a very, very moral life. We are, we are very different. Her, even her background and my background prior to Christ, just complete opposites. But when Amy was saved as a, maybe a 10-year-old girl, eight, nine, 10 years old, to the people in the church that day, it looked like a sweet little, nice little girl accepting Jesus into her heart. But from God's perspective, it is a wrenching away of that young soul from the domain of darkness and bringing it into the kingdom of light. And that's what he did for every single one of us. We don't always see it that way. But now, new creation. So friends, I'm just going to declare this over you. I know you're not quite fully glorified yet. I know that you're struggling in some areas, maybe inwardly, maybe outwardly. And and listen, that's part of the sanctification process. But I'm going to tell you, he that began the good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's just not going to give up on you. He's not going to do it. And so that, 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 that awesome power that is at work in your life, 
Don't get discouraged when you haven't, um, you know, eclipsed the top of your mountains yet. The question is, are you still walking with him? Is, is he still committed to you? And, and if he is still committed to you, then, my friends, you're walking in hope. And so that power is there. The, sec- the, third, uh, the second thing, your, your pardon was planned with eternal wisdom. I'm, I'm not going to stay long here, but Paul quotes Isaiah 29, verse number 14 there when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, uh, discerning I will thwart. And then this uh, rhetorical question, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the debater of this age? And then he answers the question, hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What is all of that about? It just means this. Religion tells you, do this and do it well enough or long enough and God will accept you. That's every religion. Every single religion says, you've got to do something for your God to maybe get him accept you. Every world religion, just examine it. Somewhere at the core of it, there's really only one other religion. The religion, it's seen in multiple thousands and thousands of different ways. But ultimately, religion says you've got to do something to get to God. And the gospel, which appears very foolish to people, says, no, you've got to recognize the God who wants you to get to him went and did everything necessary for that reality to happen. He actually did it all. And that is what is here referred to as the foolishness of the gospel, and yet it is the wisdom of God. Friends, this may challenge some of you, but I just want to let you know, he doesn't need our help. He just doesn't need it. I promise you, if he left like 20% of it up to us, we're damned. I mean that theologically, we are damned. We're going to bust hell wide open if any of that depends on us. It was his wisdom before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Before the foundation of the world, our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. He knows how to work with us. He knows how to bring us to our breaking point. He knows how to meet us at that breaking point. He knows how to redeem us and save us and secure us and fully forgive us. And then he knows how to shepherd us all the way through. So you might be going through a season where you're confused. You don't understand what's going on. You're not feeling like any connection to God. But I'm going to promise you something. He's not confused about what's going on in your life. He's actually pressing into you. It is the wisdom of God. God set this up. So at the end of the age, when we're all there, we're not high-fiving each other. I told you I'd make it. I told, man, I knew I had that. I got a little hanky down there for a little while, but I knew I'd come out of it. And we, we'd be patting our own backs up there if it had been on. And so ultimately, the theme of heaven, we sang it tonight, it's hallelujah to you. Glory be to God. And so in order for that to happen, do you know what he had to do? He had to make sure that we couldn't take credit for any of it. That is the wisdom of God in the gospel. And so as we finish up tonight, I'm going to give you this last thing. The Christian's proclamation, the last few verses, I'm just going to give you this, and then we're going to pray and we're going to be done. Paul said this, and remember, it's in the context of unity. He's gone from saying, there's divisions among you, and look what he's, how it shifts in verse 22. He says, we. He just united with them. He's been kind of pointing an apostolic finger at him and saying, you guys are doing this and there's divisions among you. But now he just inserts them. He, he, he went in with a boom, boom, and now he's going in with a hug. And so he says, we preach Christ crucified. And that is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the foolishness of God, the perceived foolishness of the gospel, God's gospel, it's wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. How do I wrap this up tonight? So I'm, I'm, I'm here in a room with y'all. Y'all are in a room with everybody else. We're all here. And we were all in the same sinking ship. All of us were. We may have had different cabins in that ship, but we were all in the same sinking ship. We were headed to a really bad destination. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came to each of us at different points along the history of our lives, and he came to us and brought the message of his love, his grace, his mercy and forgiveness, 
And in some way, through the power of the gospel, he made it personal to us to where a light went off. And we understood that it was actually him and us in that moment. And we didn't know what we were doing, but we knew one thing. We want who he is. We, we, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't have any. I, when I got saved, I just said, here's my life. I've ruined it. <laughs> there was no class for me to go through in order how to phrase the prayer. It was a, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. Psalm 34, 6. That was it. And so in that moment, he came to me and he may have come to you in a different season, in a different way with, with maybe a, a different way of expressing it. But the beauty of it is, as he came to you, he came to me. And we said yes. And immediately he made us one with the Father through his blood, but he also made us one with each other. That is the, the thing that we've got to sink our anchor into. As we move into the upcoming year, and I'm, I'm going to give you something just to make you go home frustrated that I didn't unpack it further, but I'm going to give you this. God is doing something amazing, and you're going to see it in the next nine months. And it's going to involve you. And it's going to involve this region. And I'm telling you, the one essential ingredient for all of us is what I just preached on tonight. A commitment to unity like we've never had or expressed before. And when that happens, mark me down, hold me accountable, write it down. Somebody just write this down that on whatever today's date is, Jeff said, that revival is going to sweep in. It is going to happen. I don't think it's that far away. I will be shocked to my core if by the end of summer next year that we aren't experiencing a radical blowing of the wind of the Holy Spirit like maybe none of us have ever seen in our lifetime. Hold me accountable. So, Father, in the name of Jesus... Give us today, before those winds can blow, give us a selfless commitment to endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Give us a deep thirst to be the answer to Jesus' request for unity in John 17. And Father, let us obey what is said here, that there would be no divisions among us, no quarreling among us, but that we would be the unfiltered light of a city set on a hill so that you will get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.